When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. Today, I am here with John Yargo talking about environmental catastrophe. John, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Yes. I recently received my PhD from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And in 2022-2023, I will be the visiting assistant professor of English at Boston College. My research is on literary representations of environmental catastrophe in the 16th and 17th centuries, and particularly how those representations impacted the formation of race, sexuality, and gender in the period. All right. So that means you're the right person to tell us what the heck is environmental catastrophe. Sure. Environmental catastrophes are sudden disruptive events such as sea storms, earthquakes, famines, droughts that are of such scale and intensity that they seem almost unnarratable, unrepresentable. In my period, in the early modern period, there has been a wave of revisionist history by writers such as Jeffrey Parker, Dagmar de Groot, uh, Bradley Shopik that has recovered the impact of the Little Ice Age between 1400 and 1700, and particularly the way it disrupted political institutions throughout Europe, Asia, the Americas. In the realm of literary criticism, Amitabh Ghosh provided a very influential thesis in his work of nonfiction, The Great Derangement. And in that book, Ghosh argues that Beginning in the 1700s, writers began to think of environmental catastrophe as a plot contrivance rather than a natural feature of human activity or social formations. Environmental catastrophes uh, were sort of outside the realm. They were the subject of melodrama, not high art or high literature. They figure in the works of Shakespeare, Chaucer, authors like Dryden. But beginning in the 1700s, in part because of the rise of geological incrementalism and the psychological novel, environmental catastrophes began to be seen as this deus ex machina, as a plot contrivance that only shoddy writers would introduce in their plays and novels and poems. Environmental catastrophe, I think, is really fascinating because it both marks an event 
external from our thinking, as well as a way of thinking. So the literary critic Gerard Passanante argues that catastrophizing is at once something the mind does to itself and a thing that befalls it. So it sits at the knife's edge between the world that we encounter and our own psychological and cultural technologies. There's a rich body of scholarship in the environmental humanities, writers such as Steve Mintz, Ben Nardizi, Tim Morton, Ursula Heise, Lowell Duckert, Susan Scott Parrish. I'm particularly interested in the experiential turn, uh, not so much how environmental catastrophes were understood by religious or sociopolitical institutions and how those institutions imposed an ideological shape and construction on disasters, but how individuals or communities uh, attempted to make sense of these events in the lived immediacy of a catastrophe. So in one example, Shakespeare's The Comedy of Errors begins with a scene in which the Duke of Ephesus has arrested this merchant from Syracuse, Aegean. And at first, the Duke is hostile to Aegean's request for uh, sympathy or mercy. But then Aegean relates a very vivid representation of a storm that broke up his family that had this traumatic effect on him personally, psychologically. And by the end of that vivid account, Aegeon says, yet that the world may witness my end was wrought by nature, not by vile offense. This environmental catastrophe is what has disturbed his life. And the Duke, who has been moved by pity, by sympathy, responds, nay forward, old men, do not break off so, for we may pity, though not not pardon thee. So in the relating of the lived experience of environmental catastrophe, you see this reconfiguration of social affiliations, this renewal of a kind of social contract between people, the breakdown of geopolitical settlements that have been previously established. I also think in that scene, we can reflect on our responsibility to the event of environmental catastrophe. So do we turn away from the event of the sea storm or an earthquake? Do we turn towards it? Do we turn with it? Do we convert our attention towards that event? Thinking about how we respond might be a good place for us to turn to our second question. Mm -hmm. How do I use environmental catastrophe? Environmental catastrophes, of course, can be the occasion for tremendous pain and suffering as events. But as a concept, environmental catastrophe can be very useful in scrambling the frequency of the normal, the ordinary, the taken for granted. Environmental catastrophes, particularly their literary representations, provide an abundance of epistemologies and counter-epistemologies. For instance, Rebecca Solnit, a wonderful book titled A Paradise Built in Hell, explores the way communities spontaneously form in the wake of ecological crises. So Solnit looks at the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and the 2005 Hurricane Katrina. And what Solnit is challenging in that book is this understanding of human society as adversarial, as a state of war, between individuals and communities for limited resources. And 
what she offers in this portrait of spontaneous communities forming in the wake of severe traumatic events is a model that is much more optimistic, much more hopeful. There is the building of solidarity across groups and within groups. That is one way in which environmental catastrophe can speak back to the inherited stories that we tell about human behavior and human society. Another way in which environmental catastrophes can confound the explanatory frameworks that we inherit is through this question of the foreground and the background. Environmental catastrophes, because they erupt from rivers, trees, tectonic plates, the inanimate world, it can confound the explanatory framework of a human-centered ontology. It reminds us that our vision of agency as being concentrated in human activity, human behavior, human choices is sort of violently overturned and challenged. Well, let me ask you our final question. Okay. How will environmental catastrophes save the world? This is a wonderful question. And I know you ask it of all of your guests, and it proves to be a great Rorschach test. You get to see how critics approach their archive with optimism, pessimism, some kind of ambivalence. I'm going to lean all the way in and perversely say that environmental catastrophe will save us, again, as a concept, not, not as an event. And I'm going to call on Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, who writes somewhere that with the birth of each individual we gain access to the possibility of action. Arendt is not invested in a kind of messianic politics or theology, but instead, because we can imagine beginning again, then we can act in the world in a non-prescribed way originally. And so in the same way, environmental catastrophe gives us a vocabulary for ending. There are many crises that we face from anti-Blackness to mass incarceration to the erosion of reproductive rights. And we need a repertoire of strategies and tactics for imagining the end of those regimes and paradigms. And so environmental catastrophe enables that imagining. I think of this incredible oil painting that was produced in 1651 in Cusco in Spanish-occupied Peru. It's a large painting. It's 11 feet by 15 feet or over three by four meters. It's oil on canvas and it's located in the Cathedral of Cusco. And it depicts an earthquake that happened the previous year on March 31st, 1650 at 1.30 p.m. And it devastated the uh, Spanish-occupied city of Cusco. Almost every building in the city was shaken to its foundations. People talk for years afterwards that entering a building was potentially fatal because the buildings have been so jostled and disturbed. And And they just left them there? Well, they, they began repairing. But this is, you know... In some ways, this painting was the beginning of a rejuvenation of the cultural region. The painting itself, which 
depicts the earthquake, the moment of the earthquake. And so you have all these buildings throughout Cusco disturbed and you have this plurality of responses. You have some people spontaneously dropping to their knees and praying to God. You have a startled horse that's running through the village square. Um, You have people running from house to house looking for some shelter. In the abundance of those responses, art historians have located the beginning of what has been called the Andean Baroque, which was the reincorporation of indigenous artistic practices into the painting and the art of that region. Art historians like Gavin Bailey, Ananda Suarez, have located this as the inauguration of a revitalization of indigenous art, architecture, and spirituality, often through the guise of Christian expressions of faith and devotion. Another way of looking at this would be to cite the African-American science fiction writer N.K. Jemison, who writes environmental catastrophe. She's referring specifically to dystopian fictions and help people understand, quote, how large-scale systems begin and perpetuate themselves and how those systems can be destroyed for good or for ill. In inhabiting those systems, we naturalize them. We assume that they will be eternal, that there will be no end to the way things are at this moment. But environmental catastrophes renew that access to a sense of an ending. It sounds to me a little bit like Heidegger's argument about tools. You know, you can't see the thing until it's broken. Right. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Thank you for coming and speaking with me about environmental catastrophe. It's been a blast. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Iria Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharnik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. Bye.